the invitation to the welcome reception tonight. If you want to find out a little bit more about the church, students, children, adults, the, the running of the church, please come. We'll answer any questions you have. If we, don't, if we don't know each other and you feel like Stonebridge is your church, I'd love for you to come as well. It's hard on Sunday morning to make connections and all those kinds of things. So I'd love for you all to come tonight and give me a chance to get to know you a little bit. You can sign up with Kim, and if you need child care, she can help you with that as well. Just a brief little construction update. Y'all are welcome to go walk over there. It's probably 90% done. Hopefully it'll be all the way finished next week. So thanks so much for y'all hanging in with us for the last couple of months with dust and moving things here and there. So really appreciate that. I was thinking with Les and Ashley, when we first started, this, this building was all that we had. And we actually faced this way. So the screen was kind of right there on that wall. And we had Les and Ashley and Mike were our band, and we had to call every week and beg a bass player to come. We didn't, ha- we didn't have any, so we had to beg somebody. And within this room, like just within this space, we had a sanctuary, two children's rooms, an office, and this, this conference room that we also used for children. We had bathrooms. I'm not sure where they were. But they, we had them. I can't remember where they were somewhere, somewhere here. So it's interesting to think of just in six and a half years kind of how far we've come in that sense, and I appreciate all of y'all being so flexible as we've tried to continue to make these expansions and hopefully create a better place for y'all to connect with the Lord. So again, appreciate y'all for that. You're welcome to tour over there. It's still a little bit of a mess, but hopefully by next Sunday it'll be completely finished. We've been looking at this work or this rest-work relationship rhythm that we see in Genesis 1. We looked at uh, rest, and we said last week we said we rest because God rests. It's an expression of trust for us. Every time we rest, we're not doing something, which for many of us, that's an expression of trust in God, that he's working even when we're not. It's an acknowledgement of our boundaries, that we're not infinite, that we can't maximize all the time. There's time we need to do nothing to be fallow, if you like that phrase. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at work, and we kind of we broke work into two categories. I think it's helpful to see it in two categories. There's a lot of overlap, but intellectually or mentally, I think sometimes it's good just to separate the two to make sure that you're kind of working in both of those areas. One is the Genesis 1, that's that creation mandate, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, rule, subdue. Uh, We talked about bringing structure from chaos. We talked about uh, creating things that are not there. For some of you, cultivating might be a better word. You help things grow, whether that's people or things. Those ideas, that's all Genesis 1 work, and it's good. That's what many of us get paid to do. If you're in the home, that's probably what you're doing with your family. So that, That's good and right. And then there's also this Ephesians 2.10 work, which is specifically the good works that God has created for us to do that advance his kingdom, that advance his purposes in, um, in the earth. And so we want to be thinking about both of those things when we think about work. Today we're going to look at relationships and then we're going to, if we've got a time, and I think we will, we'll look at this, the, the whole piece together at, with rhythm, and we'll close with that. So if y'all are in Genesis 2, we'll start in verse 4. The first half is stuff that we've already gone over, so I'm going to move through it really quickly. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, And there was no man to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. 
The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We'll look at those two trees uh, next week. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From, from there it separated into four head rock waters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of the Havilah where there's gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So some people see contradiction between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Genesis 1, there's vegetation is created on the third day and then Adam and Eve on the sixth day, and we just read, well, there's no vegetation, and he's forming Adam and Eve. Therefore, there's a contradiction. Therefore, you can't trust the Bible. You can't even get past the first two pages. So that's, you can, that's fine. Um, alternate explanation. Hebrew, there's a lot of ambiguity, and so a lot of these words you can, can mean several different things. And so what I'm about to tell you is totally supportable. If you care, you can go and look it up. Um, linguistically. It's just a different way of looking at it. For me, I start with the assumption that Moses wasn't an idiot. He's the one that pulled this stuff together. And if I was writing it, I wouldn't contradict myself in chapter two from chapter one. I could remember. And so I'm assuming he doesn't either. So there's a way that you can look at this, which is to say chapter one is a, it's a macro view, big picture. Here's everything that happened in the heavens and the earth. And if you notice in chapter two, it flips. It goes from heaven and the earth to the earth and the heavens, right? And so there's this thing that says we're zooming in, and chapter 2 is all about day 6. What happens on day 6 in this very uh, localized area called the Garden of Eden? So we go from cosmic, this is everything that's happening in the six days, and then chapter 2 we focus in on the most important thing, which is the creation of Adam and Eve in this place called the Garden of Eden. All that stuff with the rivers, that's just to say, see, it's a real place. It's not make-believe, it's not a metaphor, it's not pretend. Here's a place, y'all know the rivers, we know two of them, we know the Tigris and the Euphrates, we don't know those other two rivers, they're gone. But there's, it's this actual place, and there's an actual person who lived there, and here's how he was made. And the whole thing with the vegetation, he said, that Moses says in this chapter, the reason there wasn't any vegetation was because there was nobody to farm it. It's a different word, it's, it's um, plants that were cultivated. There's no gardener, so there can't be a garden yet. Let's get the gardener first, and then we'll get... The gar- then we'll get the garden. And we, we read that a couple of weeks ago and we looked at being created in the image of God. This is just a little more detail behind that. So we've looked at all that. If you have any um, concerns with Genesis 1 and 2, I can help you uh, find some resources that maybe you can dig into that'll hopefully alleviate those concerns. Where I want us to focus is starting in verse 18. The Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a suitable helper for him. The Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. 
For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife. They will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they had no shame, or felt no shame. So, just to set up, just to be clear, so this is Genesis 2, which comes before Genesis 3. So there's no sin in the world. Everything God's made up to this point, he said, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. So Adam has, he's in this, what we would call paradise, this, this garden that God has created just for him. You can eat all this stuff. There's this one tree you can't eat from, everything else you can eat from. Here's this good work for you to do. You're going to farm the land, and this is before briars, before weeds. All of that stuff comes in Genesis 3. It's not even going to be hard work. It's just good work. Perfect communion with God. His vertical relationship is unfiltered, unhindered. And yet God's able to say in the midst of all of that goodness, it's not good for him to be by himself. And again, recognize he's not completely alone. He has this incredible relationship with God and it's still not good. It's not enough just to have a great vertical relationship. There's got to be this horizontal piece as well. And so God brings all of the animals around. To say, who's a suitable helper? That word suitable is someone who's like me. So who's someone who's like me? So all the animals are paraded in front of Adam for him to realize none of them are. None of those things look like me. And so then God said, there's not a suitable helper. And so he creates Eve from Adam. If you're getting, some of you ladies, if you're getting hung up on that word helper, there's no inferiority implied there. Throughout the Old Testament, almost every time that word helper is used, it's used of God. And so don't, don't think that there's any sense of hierarchy being implied by Genesis 2. It's this idea that says Adam can't do what God has called him to do by himself, and so he needs someone to help him. And, that's, and Eve is created to help Adam fulfill his calling. You can't be fruitful and multiply by yourself, in addition to all these other things that God has said for Adam to do. And so he creates Eve, and this, this is a tangent, but just so you know, Family, there's a lot of things out here. What is the family? What's the definition of family? Is the family falling apart? It's murky waters. It's not going to get any clearer that I can see anytime soon. You can sign petitions. That's fine. Or carry signs. Or Those things are okay. I think probably the best thing is to look at this picture of family in Genesis 2. This is God's blueprint, his original design for family. Before there's anything else, he said, listen, this is what it's going to look like. There's going to be a man, and he's going to leave his father and mother, and he's going to be united to his wife, and they're going to be one flesh, and they're going to have this type of relationship where there's, they're naked and there's no shame, and they're going to be fruitful and multiply. That's the picture for family. I'm reading this book called Switch, how to, make change, how to help people change when change is hard. And one of the things they talk about is bright spots. The importance, if you're trying to help people change, of saying that's what it looks like. If you'll do what I'm asking you to do, that's what it's going to look like. This is someone who's, who's already doing this stuff, and they're a bright spot. You can see how their life is better. The assumption is the change you're trying to help people make is a positive one. When it comes to the family in our society, one of the best things we can do as Christians is to be bright spots. If, you can, if your family can be a bright spot, that will go farther in terms of encouraging others to adopt a biblical view of family than anything else you can say. It will go, it's it's better. It's better than bashing, it's better than judging, it's better than condemning, it's better than arguing. The best thing you can do is, if you live this, that we just look like, you'll be a bright spot. And over time, people will say, "That, that just looks better, and that works better. There's all kinds of 
just blown up relationships where we live. And we don't have time to dig into all of the pieces behind that. So I'm, this is broad brush. If you can be a bright spot, if your family can be a bright spot, what does that look like? It looks like spouses honoring their vows. There's a lot more to it, but there's my bumper sticker. Honor your vows. It doesn't matter if your spouse doesn't honor their vows. You honor yours. If it's going to break up, it's not going to be because of you. Because you're going to do what you said you were going to do. When you pledged before her and him, before God and all those people who are watching, this is what I'm going to do. So honor that. And again, if they don't, that's on them. That's not on you. If your marriage is struggling, throw up a hand and say, help. There's so many ways that we can help. If you let it get to DEFCON 5, it becomes a lot more difficult. We can still help there, but it's just a lot easier if you're willing to say, hey, this, we're, we're getting sideways with one another. Call me. We've got tons of people in this church who would love to walk with you. If you don't want to meet with somebody here, I can refer you to Christian counselors all day long who will be more than happy to help you with your marriage. It doesn't mean you can't, how do I say this? At some point, I think maybe this is stereotypically a guy problem, we have to realize we can't fix it all the time, on our own all the time. There has to be this willingness to say, this isn't working, and I need some outside intervention to help me see why this thing isn't working. It doesn't mean you're a failure. It doesn't mean you're a loser. It doesn't mean you're dumb. It doesn't mean any of those things. It just means it's not working. You need somebody to help you a little bit, point you in the right direction. So honor your vows. If you're struggling honoring your vows, please let us help you with that. When you have children, disciple them. There's a lot more to it, but that's my bumper sticker. Disciple your kids. If you'll honor your vows and if you'll disciple your kids, then you're going to be a bright spot. You don't have to campaign about anything. You'll be a bright spot in this community. What does family look like? And as you live that out in front of people, not in a showy way, but just in an authentic way, that will do more to reestablish God's desire and God's design for family than just about anything else that we can do. So that's the tangent, back to what we're talking about today. The relational piece, naked and they felt no shame. That's not a married single issue. It's an issue of isolation or community. Jesus was single. There's a way to develop these deep, life-giving relationships that doesn't require marriage. And there are plenty of people who married who, who don't have this type of a relationship at all. It requires a level of intentionality, and there's some components to it. You can see them up here. There's transparency, which is I let you see what's going on with me. There's vulnerability, which says I then allow you to speak into that situation. So transparency is, doctor, here are my symptoms. Vulnerability is, and what should I do about that? That's what you're looking for. And for all of us, if you close your eyes, if I say, who are your life-giving friendships? Who are the people that you can have that level of transparency and vulnerability with? There should be some faces that are scrolling through your mind. It's not going to be 25. It's going to be four or five, maybe three, maybe eight. It's a, it's a small number of people who you say, yeah, they, I'm, they can see everything that's happening with me, and I trust them enough to let them hold me accountable if I'm jumping the rails and to encourage me or even give direction when I'm looking to move forward. We all need friendships like that. This last piece to me is what's really tricky without shame. Shame is the, uh, it's the feeling that comes when you acknowledge that you've done something wrong or improper. Shame by itself is not bad. It's actually a gift from God to say, hey, you're, this is something that 
the reason you don't feel good about this is because it's not a good thing to do. Adam and Eve didn't feel shame because they'd never sinned. The issue for us is we've, is we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, so we all have some things that we should feel shame for. But that can inhibit these types of relationships. So what does it look like for us to develop these life-giving relationships where there's transparency and vulnerability where we don't feel shame even though we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and there are things that we should feel that will produce shame in us. One is if you're the friend, if you're the receiver of information, you want to, you don't want to be shocked when you hear what people are sharing with you. I was with somebody the other day and they shared something and then she sent me an email and said, you look shocked when I told you that. And I replied back and said, that was my compassion face. It just didn't, it didn't translate at all. I'm working on being a more emotional communicator. I'm not very good at that. So whatever, whatever she saw in me, I was trying to be empathetic and she saw, so it didn't work. So I've got, I have some growing to do when it comes to that. So when you're in these relationships and somebody shares something, you can't go, oh my gosh, I can't believe, like that doesn't work. It doesn't matter if you can't believe it. It's poker face. Because what they hear is judgment. It's difficult to share some of these things. And if, if your reaction is shock, or if you start digging for details, that doesn't, that's not compassionate. It's not, they're not going to hear anything other than judgment. Or fodder for gossip. It's not helpful at all. Even if internally... If your jaw is hitting the floor externally, that's not what you're conveying. You want to be unshockable in those relationships. So when people share with you, you want to, what, what they need to see from you and receive from you in the sharing of that information is just like them saying the sky's blue. Yep, I get it. Not a big deal. And then once you share, once someone shares with you, you can't share it with everyone else. With anyone else. We all have an exception, right? If I tell you, don't say this to anybody else, you, in your mind, you're thinking, okay, I won't share it with anyone else except this one person who doesn't fall under the blanket of everyone else. And everybody has an exception person. And so eventually everything comes out, right? Because we all have one person who doesn't fall under our confidentiality agreement. My encouragement to you, whoever... For many of you, that's your spouse. You don't want to keep secrets. That's okay. And so if I tell you something, it's going to go to your spouse. What you need to tell me is, hey, you just need to know that anything you tell me goes to her. And then I can decide if I want to tell you or not. That's fine. That's y'all's marital relationship. And if that's what you want to do, you just need to let me know that if I'm about to tell you something, it's going to go to her. And then I can decide whether or not I want it to come to you. Because I may not want her to know. And that's okay. I'm not trying to drive a wedge between y'all. She's just not necessarily the person I'm looking for accountability from. It's you. And so, again, if, that, if that's not how your personal marriage works, then that just needs to be on the table with the people who you're in deep relationship with. There's very few things that are more devastating than hearing something that you've told in confidence being shared by somebody else. And you think, who, how, how did they know? I only told one person. And it was hard for me to share that. So how in the world did somebody else find out? And then rather than working on whatever, bringing healing to whatever that issue is, you're chasing gossip trying to figure out the source. It's not helpful. 
at all. Some of you, honestly, and this is not a criticism, you have big mouths, and you just need to tell people that. Listen, I'm a blabbermouth. I don't do it on purpose. But I talk. And so anything you tell me, you just need to assume. It didn't stay in here. And then I can decide. Some of you, your lives are very public. Like there, are, there, there is nothing for you. you. Anything that's going on, you put out here. And so your assumption is, that's how everyone else lives. It's not how everyone else lives. And it's not better or worse. It just needs to be known or it's devastating to friendships and to relationships. You don't mean anything by it. To you, maybe it's not even a big deal, but you don't get to decide what's a big deal for me. I get to decide what's a big deal for me. And so within that, those relationships, when you're the friend, you're the one receiving poker face. They're not seeing shock from you. And then you're not saying anything. You're honoring the confidence. You're not keeping secrets. You're honoring this confidence that someone has shared with you. Whether or not you think it's a big deal, even if you know seven people who can help them, if you could just tell those people, don't. Ask me first. Do you mind if I share this with someone who I think could help you? Let me say yes or no. Let me make that decision. That just honors me in our relationship and creates a place where I can continue to share. So the flip, so you're the one who needs to share, then you've got to get over the shame, which is hard. The shame may be justified because whatever it is that you've got to share, there's a reason you don't want to share it. You feel bad about it. It's embarrassing. And so what I've got to do in that moment is recognize I'm a son of God and the things that I've done don't define me. My relationship to God defines me. And he says I'm forgiven. 1 John 1, 9. Anything I confess to him, he's faithful and just and he forgives me of my sins and he cleanses me of all my unrighteousness. So I'm not defined by these things that I've done. And so I can bring those to you. Maybe still not easy, but I'm going to overcome that shame because that stuff from my past is not, doesn't determine who I am. God does. And he says I'm pure and I'm holy and I'm chosen and I'm blameless. And so I'm going to live that way. Doesn't necessarily make it easier, but I'm going to choose to not live in the shame. Nothing good grows in the dark, ever. And so the things that I bring into the light, the enemy can then no longer use those things against me. If you've ever thought, if he or she only knew, fill in the blank. Those are the things that are in the dark, and the enemy will wear you out with that stuff, these accusations. And it will cause you to isolate yourself from other people. Don't do it. God's already forgiven you. So don't allow a forgiven sin to hold you back. It doesn't even make sense when we talk about it like that, does it? God's already forgiven us, so why in the world should that be something that continues to haunt me moving forward? James 5 says, confess your sins to one another. Why? So you may be healed. Confess to God to be forgiven. Confess to someone else to be healed. And that healing, that's freedom for you. That's bringing these skeletons, like, turn the light on. You can see the skeletons in my closet. Everybody can't. But there's three or four or five people who can. And that brings that stuff into the light. And then the enemy can't use it against me anymore. There's no, well, if they only. Because there's some people who already know. And we're still friends. She's still with me. Whatever that is. And so my encouragement to you around this whole idea of developing life-giving relationships. Whoever those people are, when I said that, you had, you had faces in your head. Can you begin to develop that level of transparency and vulnerability? And when you're the one who's hearing, be a good receiver of that information. And when it's time for you to share, be an open sharer of that stuff.
All right, we've got time. We're going to do this real quick. We're going to look at this idea of rhythm. So we've talked about work. We've talked about rest. We've talked about relationship. Let me see if I can pull it all together for you. I use the word rhythm instead of balance. Balance implies equality, and I don't feel like that's what we're looking for here. God worked six days, and he rested one. That's not even. For me, it's not help. It's, I, I try to look at things a month at a time. It, that may not be helpful for you. I feel like looking at things a day at a time will make you, it, for me, it would make me neurotic. I couldn't do that. There are, times, there are days where I just work a ton. And so I, that's just the reality of my job, and that may be the reality of some of your jobs as well. There are days where you just work a ton, and if you're trying to look at every day, it can make you feel like a failure a lot. A week for me isn't even that helpful. But a month for me is great. I feel like it's a short enough time frame that I can hold myself accountable, but it's long enough for me to say, yeah, there's actually a rhythm here. So I'm going to walk you through a schedule. So you can't read that and you don't need to. All you need to do is see the colors. This is the schedule of a guy named John Harbaugh. He's the head coach of the Baltimore Ravens. ESPN the magazine followed him for a week in December and said, chart your time. So the Baltimore Ravens won the Super Bowl last year, so he's the pinnacle of his profession when this was done. They've actually gotten knocked out of the playoffs this year, and, and they just said, chart it. And so what I've done, everything in black, you can tell what's in black, that's work. The stuff that's in red is relationship, and that's subjective. And I'll kind of walk you through that. And the stuff that's in that bluish color is what I consider rest. So I'm not putting this up here to criticize him. I don't know him at all. But I think there may be a few things that we can pull away by looking at his schedule. So, again, just so we're all on the same page, professional football, they play games on Sunday. So this is Monday, the day after a game, and he's preparing for a game for the next Sunday. It's about an 18-hour day. He works 6 to about midnight. He actually, a lot of nights he sleeps on the couch so he, in, the, in his office so he doesn't have to commute. It just saves him time. And as we walk through this, he doesn't wait. He literally doesn't waste a minute. So relationally, he's got a call to his wife for 15 minutes in the morning, breakfast with some players for 15 minutes. I called that relational. I don't know what they talked about. Then he's got lunch with his wife, and he has a 10-year-old daughter for half an hour. And then he's got dinner with some assistant coaches for half an hour. And then in terms of rest, he has an hour of exercise, and everything else is work. Let me see. I wrote down how much that was. It's about 16 hours of work on Monday. Let's see the next, please, Jesse. So this is a, another, this is about a 17-hour day for him. He's got, uh, there's a lot of red that day, and you can decide what you think about this, his there's about three and a half hours, I think it is, two and a half hours, where he's watching game tape with his dad. And so that, he says that's relational. This is what he says about it. Watching film with my dad is time we spend together doing something we're both passionate about. I'm, I'm already going to do it, and who wouldn't want to hang out with their dad? He takes notes, too, and will offer his opinion if I ask for it. So I guess you can decide if that's work or rest, but that, or work or relationship. That may be something for some of y'all who are tight in your schedule is to say, is there a way of injecting relationship into some of what I'm already doing? He's got a 10-minute call to his brother, dinner with more coaches, and then he's got another one-hour workout. The rest is work there. What does he have that day? It's the thir- 13 hours of work, an hour of rest. That's what I'm considering his workout time and three and a half hours of relationship. Let's see the next. This is Wednesday again. Don't worry about what he's doing. Um, relationally, he's got breakfast with some players, 15-minute phone call to his wife, lunch with a couple of guys, 
he meets with the owner. He says the owner has a big brother relationship with him. So I consider that relationship instead of work. He's got 45 minutes on the treadmill for rest and a 15-minute Bible study for rest. So I gave him 13 and a half hours of work on Wednesday. Um, and then I told you the rest and the work piece. Let's see what's next. Thursday, same thing. It's another long day for him, 16 hours. He's got a couple, every meal for him looks like it's relational. He's got about 30 minutes in there for meals, 45 minutes for meals, another 10-minute phone call to his wife, and then he's got weights and sprints for 40 minutes, so that's his rest, and then he's got 14 hours of work. Let's see Friday, please. This is uh, interesting on this day. He leaves at 6 on Friday, and his whole evening is spent with his family. He plays basketball with his daughter, calls his granddad, they read books together, all that type of stuff. So this is a short day for him. It's only... 12 hours, um, some relational stuff you see there in red. He's got a Bible study in the morning, and he works out in the morning. Saturday, so this is the day before his game, um, work day for him, 14 hours of work, very little relationship. He's got a 15-minute phone call to a guy named Dick Vermeil, who's a former coach, so I assume that was relational, and about a 15-minute phone call to his wife. Again, he does uh, the treadmill. He works while he's on the treadmill. So I don't know how you want to call that, but he's watching, the, he's watching a meeting when he's on the treadmill, so I guess it's okay. And then Sunday, that's his game day. He's got mass from 8.30 to 8.50. Some of you may be wondering how you can get on that train where church is 20 minutes long. Um, he's got 10 minutes with the chaplain. You can see some relational stuff, but that obviously is a heavy, heavy work day for him. So I don't say that to, it doesn't matter, I don't know him at all. None of us that I know of are professional football coaches or whatever way you think that's a, that job doesn't matter at all or there's a lot of pressure or somewhere in between. I put it out there just to say, interesting to think about if you had to chart your time. Like, what would the challenge be for you this week if I said start today and track your time through next Saturday and put it in those three buckets? Everything is either rest or it's work or it's relationship. How would it play for you? Again, for me, I try to look a month at a time, but... It, it would be interesting if I tried to do a week. So I'm, I'm going to try and I'd encourage you to do the same thing. And see, you may be doing better than you think. You may not be doing nearly as well as you think. You may see there's massive amounts of time where you're, they kind of don't fit in any bucket. It's just wasted. This is what Harbaugh says about time. I don't believe in diminishing returns in this job. To me, that doesn't apply. I think every minute matters. Every week, there's more you could do. And there are players I wish I could spend more time with. I'm constantly thinking, whom haven't I sat down with lately? So even within his job, he's thinking about it relationally. And you may be able to relate in your job. You may feel like there's always something else that I can do. You may have a job like that. And so it's difficult for you to know, where do I put the fences up? Because I could always do more. I could always go over it one more time. There's always one more meeting I could take or one more phone call to make or something like that. And so work can tend to crowd out some of these other things. Let's see this. Slide. So this is the way I'd encourage you to think through it. There's rest, there's work, there's relationship. Rest, where are you connecting with God? So if I'm going through my schedule, where are the times where I'm connecting with Him? Whether that's personally, prayer, reading the Word, worship, hopefully on Sunday morning, my small group, walking on the mountain, whatever it is, what do you have? And then what are the things I do that are just fun? That may be exercising for you, or you knit, or you bake, or Whatever. It can be some TV. I think that's fine. I think if we're honest, TV doesn't necessarily nourish our soul, even shows that are really good, like Sherlock. They just, they kind of help us one way. 
but they don't, I can't say I'm a better man when I turn the show off, even if I figure it out. It doesn't make, it doesn't work. So there's got to be, it's fine to have, it's fine to have some blow time. I think that's fine. Like I just, I don't, but there's also got to be something where you're actually being renewed and refreshed and restored. And that doesn't always need to be a spiritual, explicitly spiritual thing, just something that does that for you. When you're done with it, you're like, ah, yes, I'm energized. What are those things for you, and where are those in your schedule? And that is the easiest thing to cut because it feels like a luxury. God said, you have to rest because I did. Work, both of those buckets, again, there's overlap, there's all of those things. If you in your mind can think of those two buckets. My creation mandate job, this is what I do. This is how I put food on the table. This is what I do from 8 to 5 if that's running my house or taking care of my children or whatever that is. And then my kind of this calling piece for me, and there's overlap, but try to think of them separately. Where are the times where I'm intentionally saying, all right, God, I want you to work through me to expand your kingdom in the places where I am. Do that. And that, that for you, that may look like one-on-one meetings. It may look like serving in a ministry. It may, who knows what that looks like? But there should be some of that going on. And then relationship, I thought of three different directions. There's up towards God, that ties back into the rest piece. Am I maintaining that? There's in, I consider that primary relationships. My family, those, that, those primary friendships that I have. Am I investing in those? Am I making time for those people? And then out, I call those ministry relationships in quotes. Those are folks who maybe I'm, I'm trying to serve, I'm trying to love, I'm trying to connect with on some other level. You may have a different version of out. It may be the community or something like that. So if you look at that, try to lay that template on top of your week and just see where you're at and see what it looks like and see if there's some places where you're out of rhythm. So we've said before, Genesis 1 and 2, that's the way things are, that's God's intended, that's his creation is created design. That's the original plan before there anything got messed up. And so if, we're, if this is in there, and I believe it is, even in just in chapter 2, it's in there. It's interesting, the word in verse 15 where he says he put him in the garden, it's literally he caused him to rest. That's the word. He caused him to rest in the garden, and then he gives him this job. Now I want you to take care of all of this. So you see rest, work, and relationship just in Genesis 2. Caused him to rest in the garden. Here's this job I want you to do. And here's Eve who you can do it with. That's the pattern for us. And so if I'm missing one of those elements, if I'm out of rhythm on some, in one of those places, I'm going to wind up in a ditch. A lot of the internal things that we wrestle with, stress, anxiety, worry, running late all the time, all that being overwhelmed, all, a lot of that stuff, it's because it's we're not doing this. And nobody's going to do it for you. That's been the revelation for me over the last six months. I've got to, I have to make those boundaries. I've got to draw those lines because no one is going to do that for me. Not in a rude way. It's not their job. It's my heart and it's my life and I'm responsible for it. And you're responsible for yours as well. And so my encouragement to you is to think that through. Maybe do the exercise. Like the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to write those things. Work, rest relationship. I'm just going to write down what I do under each one. I'm not going to look at my watch every 15 minutes and see where I'm going to put it. I'm going to do it kind of in those big categories. And I'm going to write down what I'm doing with how long I did it. And just see if I'm really doing well or if I'm struggling 
in an area. Here's how we're going to close. It's our small group Sunday. We're going to hear from our small group leaders here in a second. Before we do, this is what I want us to do. I'm going to make you pick. You've got to pick one of these three things. Like if you're awesome at all of them, pick the one you're the least awesome at. And if you're terrible at all of all of them, pick the one that you're the most terrible at. And I'm going to ask you to raise your hand and say, hey, that's me. And then I'm just going to lead you in a prayer. And if you can pray that prayer in your heart, I'd encourage you to. And so who, and then we're just going to walk, walk through all three and then we'll move into this little small group leader deal. So rest, who, if you say, if I'm out of whack, it's in the rest category, who would raise their hand? Nice. So if you see your a hand up, just put a hand on their shoulder. No rubbing of the back, just a hand on the shoulder. And let's pray. Those of you who had your hands up, just if you can pray this in your heart with me, that would be great. God, I thank you for saying rest. And I confess that I don't do it very well and that it's a sin. I confess it to you as a sin that you said rest and I don't. And so, God, I'm, I'm repenting of that and I'm asking for your grace to know how to do that. God, help me draw those lines and to build those fences where I'm protecting time with you and time to be refreshed and renewed, to do the things that I love to do that bring life to me. God, I pray that when, when I rest, it would be an expression of, of trust and faith, me saying, God, that I'm not the one holding everything together. You are. I've got limits. And also saying, you're working beyond me. You don't need me to make things happen. God, I pray you'd protect my heart and my mind from the enemy and the accusations that he would sling at me saying, I haven't gotten enough done. I don't deserve a break. I can't rest until all this stuff is finished. If I sit down, then the whole world's going to fall apart. Whatever those lies are, those accusations, God, I want to say no to that and pray that you would help me rest this week. In Jesus' name, amen. If, if work is your thing for whatever reason, if, if that's an area where you struggle, if you'd raise your hand. Anybody got work? Sweet. You see people whose hands are up, put a hand on their shoulder. And you guys can, if you can pray this prayer in your heart, I'd encourage you to do so. God, I thank you for work and I thank you that you've given You've given us this ability to work and a command to work. And God, my prayer for any here who are saying, I need work, is that you would provide a job for them. Not just a job, not just a paycheck, but a place where they could thrive and flourish. God, for people who work too much, either because their boss is crazy or because they can't say no or for whatever reason, God, I pray for grace for them to know how to draw those lines at work as well. God, I pray for favor for these folks at work. I pray they'd be excellent at what they do. They would be incredible at all the different things that they do on a daily basis, that they would be a blessing to their employers and their employees. They'd be a blessing to their coworkers and their clients. God, I pray that they would walk, again, just under your favor and your grace in the jobs that you've called them to. I pray for those who are saying, I, I get that piece of the work. It's the, it's the good works that God's created for me. I don't know what you've called me to do. I don't know what ministry looks like for me. God, I pray for revelation there and, and time and opportunity to begin to stretch ministry muscles. We would recognize the places where you've put us to be channels of grace and salt and light. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Relationships, anybody got that one? Good. Wow. Let's put a hand. God, relationships, and so are, they're tricky. Sometimes I think we all would be like, it would have been good if it was just Adam. Like, put me back there for a little bit by myself. But you've placed us in this web of relationships, and there's landmines and miscommunicate. All this, it just, they blow up so easily. And so, God, I pray for these men and women who are saying, that's my struggle area. God, I pray that they would be a channel of your grace to the people in their relational network, that they would know how to extend grace and mercy to those who maybe have not done the same to them. I pray for people who've been burned in relationships, that they would make a choice for transparency and, vulnerabil- and vulnerability, even at great risk to themselves. The, the, the value of community would trump the fear of betrayal in their hearts, and you bring healing there. God, I pray... For those who are saying, I don't have people. I closed my eyes and there were no faces. God, would you draw them into community? Would you place them in family? Would they know brothers and sisters who will walk with them for years? God, I pray for those who are saying, I've got that. What I really want, I want Eve or I want Adam. God, I pray that you would draw them into those marital relationships. I pray for those who are married and who are desiring children, God, that they would be fruitful. Relationships are at the heart of all that we do, and God, they can cause so much joy and so much pain for us. And so I pray for those wrestling with relationships, the places where there's pain. I pray you bring healing, and God, move us more and more into these places of joy, that we would be ministers of reconciliation. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all for that. Um, If you have any, if you need any further ministry around that you can see me after and we'll see if we can arrange all of that small groups you got this sheet you're probably sitting on it